0: worship this morning as we go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. Proverbs, chapter 3. I've said this many times, but I think it's worth repeating. This is, uh, this is the highlight of my week, is to be with you, to hear all the body of Christ sing to his greatness and consider his gospel I hope it is the highlight of your week as well, as we meet with God's people to remind ourselves of what He has done in and through Christ. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 through verse 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The central concern of our passage this morning is to show us a picture of true living faith. Now, this may come as a surprise to some of you, at least for two reasons. First, given the undeniable fact that the word faith is not even mentioned, to put faith at the very center of this passage may seem somewhat forced. Second, a cursory reading of this text can leave us with the impression that the Christian life is more about works than about faith. After all, these verses are full of do's and don'ts. In fact, we could probably sum up the contents of this section using the words, do this, not that. And since we are people of grace who walk by faith, at times this insistence upon do's and don'ts can make us a bit nervous, especially when it comes in the Old Testament. But this should not be the case, for in the New Testament we see plenty of do's and don'ts. Here's a brief summary of Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6. Consider these words. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Put away falsehood. Speak the truth. Give no opportunity to the devil. No longer steal, but do honest work. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Put away bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. Be kind. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Do not even name sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness. Wives submit to your husbands husbands love your wives children obey your parents bond servants obey your earthly masters be strong in the lord take up the whole armor of god brothers and sisters that is the new testament that is the new testament what then shall we say that paul was a legalistic pharisee trapped in his former tradition as a zealous jew Eager to prove himself a good, impeccable man, worthy of God's favor and calling us to do the same? Did Paul forget about grace and faith in the second half of the book of Ephesians? May it never be. May it never be. What I just read to you is simply faith at work. Faith at work. Don't we walk by what? By faith or live by faith? What does that mean? Well, it means that faith permeates a section of life, one little corner. No, we walk by faith. We live by faith. That means that faith permeates all of life. Part of the joy of our creaturely life in Christ here on earth is to be able to see faith at work in us. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13. Therefore when we walk by faith and we see faith yielding its fruit in our lives we are reminded that God is at work in our lives. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 1 through 12 will show us a picture of faith at work by highlighting five of these works or fruits of faith. This morning we will only consider two. Two. Two of these works which are found in verses 1 through 4. Here's the first work of faith. Faith, living faith, works like this. Faith submits to scriptures. Faith submits to scripture. Verse 1 and 2 My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Notice, notice with me the fatherly disposition of this verse. In verse 1, my son, my son, you could hardly find more intimate language. The first thing about faith, brothers and sisters, is that it teaches us that our relationship with God is secured through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In love, the Bible says, God the Father predestined us for adoption. For what? For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1.5. This, by brothers and sisters, is where by faith we stand. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him, Romans 8:15 through17. This is the fruit of faith. It takes us all the way up to the throne room of grace, to the mercy seat itself, for through Jesus the Lord we all have access in one spirit to the Father, Ephesians 3.18. Consider what we are doing here this morning. We have gathered here to receive from the Lord. To receive both his word spoken to us through the preaching and also to receive his presence given to us through communion as the spirit of Jesus is with us. And so even now as we listen, it is God, our father, who tenderly speaks to us through his word. My son, my son, dear ones, can you think, can you even imagine a greater privilege a greater privilege that could ever be bestowed upon us than to know that through faith in Christ Jesus, we have been given the right to become children of God. John 1.13. Embedded in these tender words is an invitation to come to God as children. By faith in Jesus God is our Father, and He has welcomed us in Christ Jesus. So bring your joys and bring your sorrows, bring your victories, and bring your struggles. He is our Father, and He will not despise you. He will not despise you. Why? Because His own incarnate Son was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed, Isaiah 53. And herein lies the beauty And the glory of our faith, brothers and sisters, we don't have to leave it up to unreliable feelings. We know God as our Father and we as His children, not because we feel like it. Not because we feel like it. The truth is, if our adoption as sons and daughters were a matter of feelings, we would have no assurance whatsoever. But praise God, we have His Word. Therefore, we must not forget His teaching. We must not forget his teaching. This word has has been given to us for a reason. In connection to this, do you hear the implicit warning given to us in verse 1? Why does the Lord tell us not to forget? Because forgetting is what we are prone to do. Forgetting is what we are prone to do to do. What is this referring to? Charles uh, Bridges, in his commentary on Proverbs, pointed out that this is not a reference to the infirmity of a bad memory. I know many of us struggle with a frail memory. Instead, this is the willful forgetfulness that is rooted in rebellion. This is the forgetfulness of which we must beware. It is the forgetfulness which is born out of indifference, distrust, Resentment or neglect of God's word, we must fight this petulant, arrogant notion that we can ever earn our independence from scripture. Instead, our relationship to God's word must be like that of Eliezer and his sword. In Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 10, we learn that Eliezer. One of David's top three mighty men, a great and courageous warrior, had a particular secret for his success in battle. One day, as Eliezer fought many of the Philistines, and while the men of Israel withdrew from battle, Eliezer arose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword, his hand clung to the sword. The word clung is the Hebrew word debak, and it is the same word used to explain what the man does when he marries his wife. He must cling to her. He has no eyes for any others, just like Eliezer had his hand fastened to his sword. Letting go was inconceivable. His life depended on it. Likewise, we must cling, we must hold fast by faith to the Word of God. Why? Because our lives, too, depend on it. They depend on it. Consider also the, the added admonition in verse 1. But let your heart keep my commandments. Let your heart keep my commandments. Let me, let me give you a, a short, brief uh, word of, of caution. At the end of the day, our biggest threat as we live the Christian life in this world is not the evil of men or satanic ideologies out there or well-crafted anti-God arguments or even fierce opposition and persecution. All of those things, though powerful and real, they all remain outside of you, outside of you. Rather, our biggest enemy is the internal, secret, hidden unbelief toward God's Word. The kind that resides deep within, the kind that is easily hidden under the cover of an external religion. Beware of a heart that is growing cold toward God and His Word. This is why he says, let your heart Keep my commandments. It has to be from the heart. Therefore, from the heart, from the inner man, we must cultivate love for God's Word by constant exposure to it and meditation upon it, so that we may be like the young man of Psalm 119, verses 10 and 11, who was able to say with my whole heart, from the inside, I seek you. Let me not wonder from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is all about the delights of the inner man, my friends. What does your heart desire? What does your heart desire? What are you seeking after? Again, I must be clear. Obedience to God's word is not the call of legalism, but the call of faith. The call of faith. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's workmanship, and we have been created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we listen to the word of God read both individually as families and publicly through preaching and teaching, we do so by faith knowing that God is working in us. Remember what Paul said about the Thessalonians. Paul thanked God constantly for the fact that the Thessalonians, when they heard the word of God that Paul taught them, they received it as the word of God. And Paul said, this, work, this word is at work in you believers. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. The word of God is at work in us. God is always working in the inner man as his word goes forth. No sermon, no teaching is ever wasted. God is always doing something in our lives. It's like the example I've given before about food, right? And the meals that you eat, your body right now is the product of every single meal you have eaten. Some of those meals, you go to your your spouse or your, your wife and you say, thank you for the nutrients. I appreciate it. And sometimes you go to her and you say, that was delicious. But at the end of the day, all those meals, the not very great ones and the great ones all of them have contributed to who you are today in the body in the same way all sermons all scripture reading all teaching everything the bible every time the bible goes forth you are being worked on god is at work in you so we listen with faith we listen with faith and by the way that comment did not apply to my wife i just want to make sure that's a little too late for that but it doesn't (laughs) apply it doesn't apply. God is always at work. Let's move on, brothers and sisters. So even as we fight against the flesh, some, some of us, all of us are fighting the corruptions of the flesh. Every Sunday we come, we have fought the good fight. There are remaining corruptions that are clinging to us. But we must learn to delight in the law of God. And remember that by faith, God is always at work. Do not give up hope. Do not give up hope. God is always working in the inner being as Paul himself said as recorded in Romans chapter 7, verse 22. And this is the work of faith. This is the work of faith. By faith, we believe that God has removed the heart of stone and has given us a heart of flesh that we may walk in His statutes and keep His rules and obey them. Ezekiel eleven nineteen 19 and 20. Moreover, by faith, we believe that when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer a need for offering for sin. Hebrews 10, 12 through 18. So when Solomon tells his, his son to let his heart keep his commandments, we are reminded that in Christ, by his one sacrifice for sin and through the power of the Spirit, our hearts can indeed love his law and delight in his commandments. The ministry of condemnation, meaning God's law with its legal demands crushing on us has been surpassed by the ministry of righteousness in Christ Jesus, as 2 Corinthians 4, 9 and 10 says. We have the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom, 2 Corinthians 4:17. And because this is indeed the case, let your heart keep God's commandments. Why? Because sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace Romans 6:14 Did you see that? Did you catch what Paul says in Romans 6:14 Grace is not a license to sin. It is the power to overcome sin. It is the power to overcome. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the That's a clue. From the heart, you have become obedient from the heart. And what did Solomon tell his son? From your heart, let your heart keep my commandments. And Paul says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, 17 and 18. Interesting how Paul says it. Did you catch that? Probably not because it was going pretty fast. But here's what Paul said, you have become obedient from the heart, from the heart. You have become obedient from the heart. Who? Who has become obedient from the heart? Feel free to say, I have. I have become obedient. You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. Therefore, and obviously, let's give thanks to God. Isn't that interesting? You have become obedient. Let's thank God for it why why thank god for something that i have done i have become obedient from the heart to the word of god why because it is all his work it is all his work by faith we submit to his word by faith we obey his word by faith we mortify sin by faith we look to christ crucified and risen from the dead it is all by faith which is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Dear ones, here's my invitation. Here's my encouragement to you, my exhortation. Be free to walk in obedience to God because you have been set free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Your heart is free. In Christ, your heart is free. I don't have to ask you if you're free. I don't have to know anything about your life. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells me it is an indicative you are free. Your heart has been set free. Live like it. And as you do, length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Verse 2. Does that mean that if we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we have been called, we will, by necessity, live a long and peaceful life? The Apostle Paul did say in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, "'Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land.'" We find something very similar in Psalm 34, verses 11 through 14, regarding long life and the fear of the Lord. What do we make of this? I think the Westminster and Baptist catechisms both have something good to say. This promise of long life and peace is given to those who entrust themselves to God and His Word, quote, as far as it shall serve for God's glory and their good. The sense of this was captured well by missionary John Patton who, while escaping death on the mission field, said this, quote, I realized that I was immortal until my master's work with me was done, end quote. In other words, your life on this earth is guaranteed until when? Until the day appointed for you to die. But until then, and since we, we don't know what, when that day is, we continue to walk in obedience to God's word. And we do so by faith alone. This is the first work of faith. Let's consider the second one. Faith expresses itself through love. Faith expresses itself through love. Verses three and four. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your hearts so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Notice the language here. Notice the language. Bind. Steadfast love and faithfulness where? Around your neck. It immediately evokes within our minds the idea of a yoke. Something that is placed upon the neck. A yoke. Now, the Bible uses the imagery of yoke to speak of, can anybody guess what I'm thinking about? Sin, spiritual slavery. Spiritual slavery. For instance, in Acts chapter 15, verse 10, right in the middle of the controversy surrounding circumcision, Peter said the following to the legalistic Jews who were trying to force adherence to the law of Moses on the Gentiles. Peter said this, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor nor we have been able to bear? What does that mean? Well, the Jewish leaders had turned the law of Moses into a burden, a burden, a teaching, by teaching that salvation was through strict obedience to the law of which circumcision was at the very center. But this was a fatal, fatal mistake, for the law was never intended to be placed upon our necks in order for us to carry that weight all the way up to heaven as if that were even possible. We can't. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 1 is good too but uh, for this morning we're going to focus on 5 Galatians chapter 5 and i want us to consider verses 1 through 4 and these are strong words from paul remember we're talking about solomon told his son bind around your neck steadfast love and faithfulness well consider how paul spoke of the yoke 1 Corinthians i'm sorry galatians First Corinthians is good too. Galatians 5, 1 through 4. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. What is that yoke? Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, don't lose your spot on Galatians. We're going to come back to it. Stay there for a moment. Extremely strong words from Paul the Apostle nothing in this life could be worse than to hear the words you are severed from christ nothing could be worse christ is the fountain of all life and incorruptible love but the words remain true to this day if you Anyone in this world, if you desire to seek God, come to God, worship God, have fellowship with God, and be with God apart from Christ Jesus, then all your attempts are simply futile. You're beating the air. This is how it works. It's either Christ, faith in Christ, or condemnation those are the only two alternatives that the world has either christ and him alone or damnation there's nothing 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 else if you want to be saved by putting yourself under the law then you are severed from christ meaning you are severed you are set asunder you are separated from the one and the only source of salvation You're walking toward condemnation. And this, says Paul, is slavery. To be under the law is a yoke upon the neck, the weight of which is impossible to carry. If you want to save yourself by being good, quote-unquote good, you are condemning yourself. This, This yoke, this law, this trying to be good will crush you in contrast to that yoke. The unbearable yoke of the law the one that eventually breaks the neck, the Lord Jesus offers us a different one. In fact, when the Lord extended his invitation, he used a language similar to that of Solomon in Proverbs 3.3. Listen to it again. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. The Lord Jesus said it like this. Come to me. Come to me. All who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29. Uh, it just came to my mind, the story of the widow. I think I mentioned that last week, didn't I? Thank you for remembering, because I didn't. But the story of the widow, you know what the widow was was doing? The widow went to the temple. She gave everything she had, and she was left destitute. She was carrying the yoke created by the false teachers of Israel. That's what they did. They preyed upon widows. So she goes to the temple and she's the victim of this false religious system that told her, give everything you have. And that was the yoke that no one could carry. But what is the yoke of Christ? The yoke Christ puts on our neck is different. You know why? Because it came at the cost of his own life, by the shedding of his own Blood. Listen to what one writer said in connection to Christ's invitation to take his yoke upon us. Quote The New Testament shows us a Christ who gives all things before he commands all things, and a Christ who commands all things only because he first gives us all things. End quote. We take the yoke because Christ did the work on the cross. When Christ comes to us, he turns our hearts into his own throne. He cuts the heart open by the power of his word and spirit, and he takes up residence within as king, as he did in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, with the Jews who heard Peter's Pentecost sermon. He sovereignly removes our rebellion. He converts the heart, as he did in Acts 16, 14, with Lydia. And when the Spirit of Christ comes to us he does something amazing in the language in the words of romans 5:5, god's love has been poured out into our hearts how through the holy spirit who has been given to us so then what is the yoke of jesus go back to galatians 5 let's read 5 and 6 for through the spirit by what? By faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And here comes verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, whether you're Jew or Gentile, that, counts for, that doesn't count for anything. But only what? Faith working through love. What is the yoke of Jesus? The yoke of Jesus, that which he puts on our necks is faith in his name, which works through love as the spirit moves in us and through us. Faith working through love. Because therefore the yoke of Jesus is easy and his burden is light. Why? Because faith always operates within the sphere of love. A love sealed with Christ's blood, secured eternally by his resurrection from the dead, and applied to us believers by the Spirit. Ultimately then, when we read in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3, to bind steadfast love and faithfulness on our necks and write them on our hearts, we are being invited to what? to rejoice in the rule of Christ in our hearts as our faith works through love in the power of the Spirit. And this is the essence of it all, is it not? Did not Paul say that love is the more excellent way? And did he not say that the greatest of all virtues is love? He certainly did. Hence, Jonathan Edwards' conclusion when he said that, quote, True and living faith always contains love. Without love, faith is as dead as the body is without its soul. Then he added, quote, Love is the life and soul of a practical faith. As you can see, brothers and sisters, without love, there cannot be true faith. Therefore, we must be very clear in our minds of the following. When we say that we walk by faith, we are saying that the supreme manifestation, the supreme expression, the supreme display of this faith is love because faith works through love. Consider the practicality of this teaching in connection to the importance of life in the local church. What do I mean by that? I mean this. The people around you, And you don't have to look at him right now. It's kind of awkward. But the people around you, both here in this local body, as well as those outside in the community, listen to this. They are the people around you. You're like, really? Even that person that I'm thinking about? The people around you are the God-given context in which we must exercise our faith. In what way? In this way, the people around you are the only context in which faith can be expressed through love. In other words, what I'm saying is this. You cannot love outside of relationships. Let me prove this to you by appealing to the doctrine of the Trinity. Is God love? Yes, you can go with all certainty. Yes, God is love, says John, 1 John 4 8. But when we talk about God, we're always thinking about God as a triunity, right? Triunity. The Trinity is at the very heart of God's love. When we say God is love, we are saying first and foremost that the triune God exists. Listen, the triune God exists in an eternal and perfect reciprocity of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This being the case, we must be clear that God did not create us or the world because he was lonely and needed some love. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is eternal, perfect, Trinitarian love. Rather, God created the world so that through the person of his Son incarnate, we, the creatures, could now participate, be partakers of this Trinitarian love. If anyone loves me, said the Lord Jesus, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. John 14 23. You see what is happening there? The Father and the Son love each other with perfect, eternal love. But because of the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we can now become partakers of this divine love. How? By the Spirit who has been poured out into our hearts. No question about this, my brothers and sisters. The Christian faith is a faith that only a triune God can give. No trinity, no faith no love, no Christian faith. Why do I include the ascension of Jesus? Because when he ascended in his glorified, indestructible body, the Bible says he sat at the right hand of the Father, he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and therefore he's the one who sends the Holy Spirit to his church, Acts 2.33. So given the absolute centrality of love, Paul could then say these words in Romans chapter 8, verse 8 through 10. In fact, go there with me, and we will read this together. I think this is an important point. Paul is driving home the point of how the law is actually fulfilled. Romans 8, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything, except what? To love God. brothers and sisters, is highly relational because love can only happen in relationships. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and men, says Solomon. Why will you find favor and good success in the sight of God and men? Because of love. Consider with me 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That which you must bind around your neck and write on the heart is love, which means that the primary manifestation of our faith is always in relation to others. The primary manifestation of our faith is not simply to say, I believe, I believe. The primary manifestation of faith is always in relation to others. For instance, if your knowledge, though great, leads you to develop a critical spirit of everyone around you or indifference of everyone around you or isolation from everyone around you, then that type of knowledge is only puffing you up. It is worthless. It accomplishes nothing. It does not proceed from faith. Romans fourteen twenty three says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Interestingly, even knowledge though good in content, can be sinful in nature if it is void of love, a true and sincere desire to edify others, which is how faith works. So how important is love? If you don't have it, your faith is dead. These words bring me to a necessary and relevant application, and we're almost done. I'm very grateful for the resurgence I have seen of Reformed theology and all that this entails, including a resurgence of classical education and things of that nature. I celebrate those things, but while we should celebrate these things, we must be cautious that we don't become a puffed-up people who love knowledge for its own sake, but forget the more excellent way of love, the essence of true faith. The absence of love comes with very severe warnings. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul says this, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Well, where is the love in that statement? It is love based on truth. It is truthful love. And in John adds this in 1 John 2, 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. Whatever we do, brothers and sisters, let us pursue love above all things as we are told to do in 1 Corinthians 14.1. So I end with this simple, simple question for further meditation. Do you see faith at work in you? In summary, faith submits to Scripture and faith expresses itself through love. Consider these things carefully, my brother and sister. And as we examine ourselves, we do so in faith, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Next Sunday, we will finish our study by considering the remaining three works of faith out of verses 5 through 12. And I hope that you will be here for that. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word your word, which is the source of all truth. We thank you for the fact that the word itself points us to Christ Jesus and him crucified and risen from the dead. We thank you for the work of the spirit within us, the one who leads us and guides us. And we pray, Lord, that through our lives, we will be a living testimony to your work, your goodness, and your grace, and that others will see us, And they will be able to say glory to God in the highest. So thank you for the work that you have done, are doing, and will continue to do until the day of Jesus Christ. And all these things we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.